Good morning, church. Oh, yeah, baby. We're alive this morning. Amazing. My name's Sam. I'm on staff with the church. Uh, We are going to keep rolling along in the Gospel of John. So if you've got a Bible, uh, open it up. John chapter 3. We're going to finish up chapter 3 this morning. So we're going to roll verse uh, 22 all the way through uh, verse 36. Now, uh, in two weeks' time on Christmas Day... Uh, my wife, Sarah, and I are planning on jumping on a plane and flying back to Sydney, Australia for a visit. Uh, we're hoping, we're praying that we'll be able to do that, uh, and that's going to be amazing. But something that I'm going to have to uh, relearn and readjust to is that they drive on the wrong side of the road there in Australia. It is so trippy if you've never learned how to do this, guys. The, the steering wheel is on the right side of the car, and they drive in the left-hand lane. And if you grew up driving the opposite this is, this is wild. And I got a job right when I moved there. And so it was like day one, I had to just learn how to do this. And I almost killed so many people, but I just had to do it. And so I bought a car. And something I learned very, very quickly in learning this process, um, which may seem obvious to you, but it was not to me, is that wherever you focus your attention, the car starts moving that direction. And so I have like no awareness of the left side of my car because I'm on the opposite side and I'm not used to it. So the whole time, instead of looking straight forward in my lane where I'm supposed to be driving, I'm looking at my front left bumper and I'm looking at the other lanes beside me and the other cars and other drivers on either side of me because I'm so concerned about not hitting them. But as I start to look and make sure my left front bumper is not drifting, I start to drive that way. Wherever I'm looking, I start to turn that way. And it all came to a climax uh, one time when I was rushing to work, driving to work, and uh, I nearly smashed into the, the back of a guy's car, and he slammed on the brakes, and so I slammed on the brakes, and he rolls down his window, and he starts yelling at me, what's wrong with you, man? What's your problem? And I was just like, I, I don't know, I'm Canadian. I don't know. And he was about to throw his coffee at me out of his window, and I just... I was like, dude, I'm sorry, I'm not from here, I'm an alien, just give me a break. But if you'll excuse the cheesy analogy for a moment, I think there is some real spiritual truth to this scenario where I learned that wherever I focused my gaze, wherever I fixed my eyes and focused my attention, that's where the car started to go. And spiritually, as we try to to do what John has been encouraging us to do, walk in this abundant life this meaningful, full, rich life in the presence and the power and the spirit of God through Jesus Christ, as we try to live our lives for the glory of God alone, there are so many things that can take our gaze, take our attention, take our focus off of that prize and wreak havoc in our lives where just like my car started swerving all over the place, we can start swerving all over the place with our lives and lose focus on what really is most important, what really matters most. The Bible tells us over and over again, Proverbs 4, right? Fix your eyes on what is before you, right? Mind your feet. Don't swerve either to the right or to the left. Stay focused. The the author of Hebrews tells us, fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, right? And it can be so easy for us to get thrown off course and havoc gets wreaked in our life, in our spiritual life, our walk with God. And I am convinced, especially in our modern Facebook, Instagram day that we live in, where everybody's life is just 
hyper-displayed for everyone to see, I am convinced that one of the things that is throwing us off the most is comparison. The temptation that we have to constantly, obsessively look at our life and what we have, what God has given us, and stack it up next to and compare it against what God has given other people, their family, their life, their success, their job, their this, their that, their house, whatever it might be, if we can get our eyes off course, fixed on other people, we will not be focused on what God has given us and what God has given us to do, what he has called us to in our lives. And this can just be devastating to our spiritual life. And so if you've ever felt that, if you've ever experienced that, that that discouragement, that bitterness, that envy, that jealous spirit that starts to creep in when you're tempted to compare yourself to everybody else in the world around you, this passage I'm just praying speaks to you as it spoke to me this week. We're going to look at uh, the last instance that we have in John's gospel of John the Baptist. And God, through John the Baptist, is going to give us some just wonderful, beautiful, rich wisdom on how we can navigate this issue, this poison of comparison that creeps into our lives. John's going to show us what it means to keep our eyes fixed on what really matters and live a life that is both joyful, that brings contentment, and that brings glory to God. So I'm praying that God speaks to you this morning through it. Let's read the passage, verse 22 of chapter 3. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. 
little bit of context for this story. So John the Baptist, we looked at him a few weeks ago, right? He's this prophet who comes out of the wilderness after 400 years of prophetic silence between the Old and the New Testament. John is this wild-eyed, locust-eating, Nazarite vow, so he never would have drank, never would have cut his hair or his beard. So he's just a crazy man, comes out of the wilderness, and he starts preaching repentance, turn from your sins, be washed clean, let's get you baptized, following God. And so he, he starts developing this following. He starts developing uh, disciples. People start following John. They start going out to John. And we read it here. People are still going to John to be baptized, to repent of their sins, to be washed, to start following God. But then we see Jesus show up on the scene, right? And Jesus starts, starts preaching repentance and he starts baptizing. And he says, come to me, come to God, repent of your sins, be washed clean. So now Jesus right? Starts to call people to follow him as well. And he starts developing a following just like John. And so first, John was kind of the popular prophet on the scene. He had all the followers. Everyone was going to him. But then Jesus comes up and he's the son of God sent by God. John was just sent before him to to prepare the way and declare to people, get ready for the real one, the Messiah, the Christ. He's coming and I want you to fix your eyes on him. So now more people start going to Jesus. And what do we read here? As that starts to happen, We have Jesus baptizing and we have John baptizing. More people start to go to Jesus and John's disciples have an issue with that, right? They come to John the Baptist and they say, Rabbi, look, that one that you declared across the water, across the Jordan, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. So John's disciples go to John and they want him to start comparing himself to Jesus' ministry and they say, hey, look, this is an issue. This Jesus guy, the one you you told everyone about, His ministry is growing bigger and more popular and faster than ours is now. And so they have this jealousy, this bitterness. They go to John the Baptist and like, what are we going to do? This guy's kind of beating us at this whole baptism game, right? They're stricken with jealousy, stricken with bitterness, and they think that it's a problem. And so I just want to point out a few things about this, this deadly, poisonous spirit of comparison and jealousy and bitterness that can creep in. I just want to, want to look at a few things here. Comparison kills effectiveness and contentment. That's the first thing. And for you alliteration people, uh, I made it into three Ds. So the first thing, com- com- uh, comparison kills our effectiveness and our contentment by distracting us. Comparison distracts. Right, So as long as we are preoccupied with what God has given to other people, we will fail to be faithful with what God has given us. Right, It's this weird thing where if we have our eyes fixed on what other people are doing, the success that they're having, the, the forward steps that they're taking, the things that God has given them, the blessings in their life, we get so fixated on those things, what they have, that I can actually forget what God has given me, what he's given me to steward and to do something with in my life, right? Christmas is coming up. This is like the the kid on Christmas morning who opens his presents and it's this beautiful, amazing present, but then he's just whining about what all of his siblings got. Dad, I wanted that thing. I wanted that thing. It's like, kid, look at your Lego. The thing's beautiful, right? You just haven't done anything with it. It's a mess. It's a pile of bricks right now, but it's got potential, And you're whining about what your brother has, right? This is what happens when we get so caught up on what God has given other people to do in their life, the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the circumstances of the people around us. We can be so ignorant and and lack 
stewardship with what God has given us in our lives. And the reality is that I am not responsible or accountable for what God has given anybody else. That's their job. That's their gift. That's their calling. They're accountable to God to use that thing, to make the most of it, right? I am responsible. I'm accountable to God in my life with what he has given me. And I think we can waste so much time and so much energy thinking about being jealous of, bitter about what God has given other people that we fail to actually do what God has called us to do with what he has given us, right? And so the question needs to become, instead of looking around, scrolling, talking to people and comparing, you know, my marriage to somebody else's marriage, my spouse to somebody else's spouse, it's like God didn't give me that woman to love and to serve and to die for. He gave me my wife to love and to serve and to die for. How can I do that more wholeheartedly? Instead of asking, God, why did you give these children to this family? Man, the Carters look so beautiful. Look at those kids. My kids are a mess. I don't have kids. But instead of asking that, it's asking, God, you have given me this family, these children. What does it look like for me to be faithful in raising them in the ways of the Lord? Raising them to be godly people. Comparison kills our effectiveness and our contentment by distracting us. And God says, no, there's, a, there's an instance in John chapter 21 later on toward the end of the book when uh, the, the disciple Peter um, is asking Jesus about John and he's, he's asking Jesus basically, what are you going to do with John's life? What's John's calling? And he says, uh, when, it says, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about John? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Isn't that beautiful? Peter's asking Jesus, what are, you doing, what are you doing with John's life? Look at what John has. That looks cool. What are you going to do with his life? And Jesus goes, hey, what is that to you? Don't worry about John. Worry about you. You follow me. What does it look like for you to follow me? Right? In our lives, we spend so much time. God, oh, you've given this to this person. Look at how successful this person is. Look at how happy this person is. And, and God's just going, man, don't worry about them. Don't worry. What do you have? What did I give you? Steward that. Make much of that. Second thing, comparison kills our effectiveness and contentment by discouraging, and I'll just lump the third one in there, discouraging and deceiving us. So if you guys felt this like I have where you... You know, you talk to other people or if you're on social media or whatever, you start scrolling or you start talking to people and it's just like, oh man, I've just talked to or looked at like a thousand people who look so happy and who look so put together, so beautiful, like they got it all worked out, right? And then this, this, this kind of sadness, this discouragement just kind of sinks in where you're like, man, I don't have it together like that. I'm a mess. Look at these people. You know, with your relationship, you, you look at, you know, Instagram or whatever, and it's like a picture of a couple on a date, and it's like they're on the top of a mountain with sushi and, you know, dressed all beautiful, and they look perfect, and it's like, perfect date night, best husband ever, and I'm like, I'm a terrible husband. I never do that. I can't pack sushi up this mountain. And it just, this discourage. I start comparing myself, right? And it's deadly. And I start to get bitter. I'm like, I hope you fall off that mountain. You know, hurt yourself, sprain your ankle on the way down. You won't be looking so pretty. 
And right, this bitterness starts to, am I the only one? (laughs) Is it just me? (laughs) Someone amen that. Right? But it starts to creep in and this ugliness starts to well up in me where I'm like, oh man. Oh, and the, but the, the thing is, it's deceptive because it's not real, right? Nobody posts the pictures where you're looking ugly and your spouse looks hideous and you cooked a terrible meal, right? You post the best, you know? Post the best, hide the rest. That's the motto, right? And the, the crazy thing is that these people that we start to compare ourselves to, you know, like John's disciples, try to, try to get John the Baptist to look at Jesus and start competing against him. And John's just sitting there going, he's not my competition. I actually came to point people to him. I'm glad that people are going to him. Right? And this, this silly thing happens where we, we inadvertently, we enter into this like weird, silly competition with people that nobody asked us to start competing in. Right? And we start to see other people, whether it's in our, our job or you know, our friendship group or our, our life or even our ministry, the church is not, not protected against this. This spirit creeps into the church. Look at their ministry. Look at how many people are going to that youth group or this young adult's thing. Or look how many people they have on a Sunday. You know, but we start to see other people as enemies and competitors who God has actually called us to, to love with the love of Christ and to pray for and to encourage Like if a thousand people suddenly start going to a church down the road in Cloverdale, like praise God, right? Praise God. People are going to hear the gospel and, you know, hear the word of God preached and love God and honor God. I love Paul in in Philippians. He says this. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Hey, John the Baptist didn't place his worth and his value in being the most popular prophet that the most people were coming to to get baptized with. His identity wasn't wrapped up in that. He knew exactly what his mission was. He knew why God sent him. He wasn't about to let his eyes get get distracted onto something else. He knew who he was and he knew who his God was. This deadly comparison Right? It distracts, it discourages, it deceives. So what is the remedy? I love John's answer. Look at verse 27 of our passage. Look at verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John's remedy for this, this ugly comparison game is, is finding security in the sovereignty of God. There is so much freedom, there is so much security in realizing that this God that we serve, this God that we worship is a perfect God, a loving God, a wise king that he is over all and that he allows everything that he allows, he gives everything that he gives for a reason. Right, So anything that those people around me that I'm comparing myself to, anything that they have, any success, any prosperity, any joy, any happiness, that has come directly down from the hand of God. He has chosen that that person should have that thing. That couple should have those kids. That person should have that spouse, those friends, whatever it might be, whatever you're looking to, everything comes through the hand of God. There's not a single thing that any of us has 
that has gone through the will or the hand of God and he has been unaware of it. He's not surprised by anyone having anything. Every circumstance that we see before any of us experience that circumstance, it first passed through the sovereign hands of a loving and good God. He has allowed it. He has given it. And when that reality sinks in, man, the the freedom that comes from that, that needs to set us free. He is God. I am not. I can be bitter and jealous and envious and wish that person didn't have that thing, that success, that whatever, but God has given it to them. He chose to give it to them and he is perfect. His will is perfect. And now once I'm free from that, I can actually be happy for that person. I can pray for that person. I can encourage that person. And then I can look and see and ask, God, what have you given me? Because it's not what that person has, but you've given me something. What does it actually mean? What does it actually look like for me to steward that thing, that gift? What does my calling actually look like? Let's get on with it. John says, I told you guys. He says this to his disciples. I told you already. I'm not the Christ. I'm not in competition with this Jesus. I know what my role is. It's to point to him. It's this beautiful trust in the sovereign hand of God and it's an unbroken focus that John has on the task that God has given him. Eyes forward, in my lane. I'm not going to get distracted either side, right or left. Eyes forward, I'm going to stay in my lane. Man, there's so much joy, so much security, so much humility when this high view of God's sovereign hand becomes operational in our lives. What has he given you? Have the courage to ask God, God, what, what have you actually given me to steward in my life? What, do you actually, what does it look like for me to be faithful with what you've given me, with my family, with my work? Right now, and maybe you do, you do need to work harder. Maybe you do need to go for a promotion. I'm not saying any of that stuff. But right now, with what you can handle right now, what is God calling you to be faithful with? Security is in God's sovereignty. And the next thing John wants to show us is that joy is in the increase of Jesus. Right? Look at these beautiful words. Let's keep moving through the passage. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Isn't that beautiful? John knows his role and it gives him great joy to fulfill that role, to walk in it, right? And he uses the analogy of a wedding, right? A best man and a groom. And we know how this works, right? The best man isn't the star of the show on a wedding day, right? It's not about him. What's the role of the best man? Basically just to do whatever the bride tells him to do. But what does the best man do? He sets up, right? He sets up tables. He arranges things. He makes sure everything's in place. And then he's in charge of taking the groom, you know, backstage before they go out there and slapping him around a little bit and being like, man, come on, man up. Let's go. You ready for this? Because the groom's usually freaking out. I don't know if you know this, ladies, but the groom's usually freaking out. And it's the best man's job to kind of, you know, let's go, man, get him ready to step out there and make these vows and get hitched to the bride, right? That's his job. And it was very similar uh, in this time in, in Jewish custom. So there was this best friend that John's talking about. It's the, the best man figure. And it would basically be the same. The best man would preside over the ceremony. So he would be with the, uh, with the groom the entire time leading up to. He would make sure everything's ready to go. 
and then he would stand like the best man does now. He would stand next uh, to the groom and hear these vows. And like John says, he rejoices greatly at the voice of the groom, right? So he would stand next to the groom and just hear these vows that the groom is making. And just go, yes, I'm celebrating this. And then he was in charge of making sure uh, that the bride and the groom uh, came together and he would escort them to the bridal chambers and make sure that they consummated the marriage. We don't do that anymore. I don't, we shouldn't. Um, and then he would disappear and just fade off into the night. That was it. He wasn't the star of the show, right? It was about the groom. It wasn't about him. And what John is saying is, I'm not the, I'm not the groom. I'm not the focus. I'm not the spotlight. I'm not the star of the show here. Someone else is. Jesus is. Jesus is the groom. And God loves this imagery all throughout the scripture, right? God loves marriage. He loves weddings. We've already seen, right, Jesus show up at a wedding. God loves this imagery, and he uses it throughout the scriptures as a picture of his love for his church. The bride is the church, right? It's his people, and Jesus is the groom. He comes to rescue and to love and to serve and to sacrifice for his bride, the church. And what John is saying is, it's my joy to not be the center of attention. It is my joy to not lift myself up, to not make my life about me, to not make my life about my joy and my pleasure and my satisfaction and my status and building myself up and making sure everybody looks at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. No, look at the groom. Look at that suit that he put on. Look at the groom. Right? A couple years ago, I had the, the honor of being the best man for Uh, For my best buddy, Taylor, he's my college roommate, played on the soccer team together, just amazing guy. So I got to be with him through that whole process, get him ready for the wedding. I got to stand with him, hand him the rings, you know, hear his vows, just hear how much he loves Leanne, how much he cares for her, how much he's ready to die for her, lay his life down for her. And then I got to give a speech, right? That's how it works. And you know what I didn't do when it was my turn to give a speech? I didn't stand up in front of 200 people and go, you know what? Taylor's okay, but Leanne would have been happier with me, right? Like, what a loser, right? I didn't stand up and go, yeah, Taylor's all right, but if Leanne was really that smart and had good taste, she would have, she would have probably picked me instead, right? John's saying, don't do that. It's not about you. What did I do? I stood up there and told 200 people how amazing Taylor is, how he's the best guy how he's selfless, how he's going to sacrifice for Leanne and love her and care for her, and he's going to be the best husband in the world. And I rejoice at hearing their vows, hearing Taylor say how much he loves her. Right? I rejoice. That made me so happy. And then that was it. I was done for the night. Right? I tore up the dance floor for a couple minutes to some Whitney Houston, and then I faded off into the background. Right? Done. No more. I'm gone. Right? That's the, that's the best man's job. John is saying, stop trying to be the groom. He's saying to his disciples, I'm not the groom. And we rob ourselves of so much joy by trying to build ourselves up, lift ourselves up, look at me, look at me, look at me, trying to get the attention on ourselves, trying to get more stuff for ourselves, more status, more success, more notoriety. Right? And what does John say? He gives us this beautiful statement. Look at verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Oh man, if that would be just the cry of each of our hearts. He must increase. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. 
right? We get caught up thinking that the way that I'm going to have a more joyful life, a more satisfying life, is by getting more for myself. It's by pumping myself up. Get more pleasure, more joy, more stuff for me, more status for me. John's saying, no, you've got it wrong. That's how the world thinks. But God has uniquely wired us in such a way that we will not truly be satisfied in this life until we find our satisfaction in him, in Jesus. Right? St. Augustine said it, right? You've made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts will be restless until they find rest in you. John says, he must increase. In my own heart, my own affections, he must increase. That's the secret to joy and contentment. Jesus must increase. More of Jesus. I rejoice at hearing the voice of the bridegroom. Right? I rejoice at hearing the voice of Jesus. Can you hear the voice of Jesus? Are you so distracted that you can't hear him anymore? You think you're going to get more joy in doing more stuff and getting more stuff? No. It's in hearing the voice of Jesus. Do you have so many things going on around you? Are you so busy? So many distractions? Or are you able to hear his voice? And joy is in exalting, glorifying the name of Jesus. Right? He must increase, yes, in my heart, yes, in my life, yes, in my mind, but he must increase in the world. John knows this secret that joy is found in making Jesus known, in lifting up the glory of Jesus for his fame, his renown in the world. He must increase, I must decrease. And this will set us free. This will give us so much more joy and contentment than we can find anywhere else. Right? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's that classic John Piper quote. He's most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Are you treasuring Christ? Really treasuring him? Like the guy who you finds the treasure in the field and he sells everything he has so he can go buy that field. Is Jesus everything to you? He must increase, I must decrease. And I think that sometimes we wish that statement said, he must increase, well, at the same time, I increase. Right? That's not what it says. We wish it was, yeah, I hope Jesus is exalted. I hope he's glorified. But I also, at the same time, it'd be nice if I was exalted too. Right? As much as my, if my ministry grows, if my popularity grows, then maybe Jesus can grow alongside of me. And it's like, no! There is not room in your life for me to be glorified and for Jesus to be glorified. Right? There's not enough room in my life for me to live for me and to live for the glory and honor and fame of Jesus. I must decrease. John the Baptist knew this. If you caught that little uh, verse 24, right? For John had not yet been put in prison. John is going to get put in prison and get his head chopped off for this. He must increase. I must decrease. Joy is found in the glorification of Jesus Christ in my own heart, in my own life, and in the world. Man, how that'll just radically change our friendships, our marriages, our family life, our work. If we approach every situation, every circumstance, not going, how can I increase? How can, he de- how can I decrease? How can he increase? How can Christ be glorified through how I handle this situation? Right in my marriage, how can Christ be glorified? Even when I'm frustrated, when we're struggling, 
How can Christ be glorified? He needs to increase. I need to decrease. There's not enough room in there for my pride and for the glory of Jesus. Right? I need to die to myself. In our friendships, how can Christ be glorified? In our work, whatever he's given you to do right now, how can Christ be glorified? Not me. He must increase. I must decrease. And then John lays it out in the last few verses here. Verse 31. He who comes from from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. John is saying this is a, a worldly, humanist, earthly idea that the greatest joy and satisfaction is in lifting ourselves up and living for us. That's how the world thinks. And most people buy into it. That's an earthly way of thinking and it'll get you. But he's saying, no, this message that Jesus has brought, the Christ, the Messiah, is different. He's from above. He's not of the earth. He's the son of God anointed with the fullness of the spirit of God poured out on him. What does it say? It goes on to say, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus is from above and he is above all. He's not of the earth. We spend so much time listening to voices that are of the earth, wisdom that's of the earth, knowledge that's of the earth. Jesus is from above. The Father who loves him has given all things into his hand. All authority, all power, all wisdom, all knowledge. His ways are higher than our ways. And did you catch that? He's poured out the fullness of the Spirit on Jesus. Without measure, the fullness of the Spirit lives in Jesus. So Jesus is not speaking of the earth. He's speaking words that are from above. He gives testimony for things that he has seen and heard from the Trinity, from the Godhead. The truth. Jesus reveals the truth. And we'd be foolish not to follow him, not to listen to this truth. Yet, it says, verse 32, yet no one receives his testimony. This is the reality. There are what what C.S. Lewis says, there are two kinds of people in the world. Right? And this is what John is saying to us. There are some, there are those who see the testimony of Jesus, who hear his words, who see his deeds, operating in the fullness of the power, the full measure of the Spirit, of God speaking the very words of God and they see what he's done, they see who he is and they bow the knee and go, yes, Lord, I want to give my life to you. I need to give my life to you. I don't have life right now. I need to find life in Jesus. They look at what Christ has done for them in the cross, in his perfect life, in the empty tomb, in the spirit poured out and yet many do not Receive him, right? Their eyes are blinded by the ways of the world. And but all who do receive him set their seal to this, that God is true. That God is true. Most people don't receive him, but there are those who set their seal to this, that God is true. Is God true? Some of us haven't even arrived at that question yet because we throw up so many smoke screens, so many distractions. I don't want to deal with this. I'll just, I'll throw up an emotional argument 
It doesn't make me feel good. I don't know. I don't know. I'm scared of what my friends will think of me. My family will think of me. If I give my life to Jesus, if I receive him, if I start walking in his ways, if I start living for Christ as a Christian, what is my family going to think? What are my friends going to think? They're going to think I'm a wacko, right? So I'm not even going to deal with that. But John's saying, no, 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 no. Is it true? Not how does it feel? Forget about that for a second. Forget about what other people are going to think. Is it true? Is God true? Because if he is, if this God is who he says he is, then his promises are also true. And he will help you deal with the rest of the stuff. Forget about that for now. Let it take a back seat. Is it true? That's the question facing every single one of us. Every single person that has ever lived. What are you going to do with Jesus? Not how does he make you feel in the moment. Not what other people think. Is it true? Is God true? We need to decide what to do with Jesus. And verse 36, this is the two kind of people. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So last week, Sean already gave us an awesome breakdown of, of some of the realities, the nature of God's wrath. But we just need to talk about it for a couple more minutes because it's in this passage. The last two passages, which must mean that it's important, that it's real, and that we need to figure out what, what to do with it. Right? And it's not an easy concept. As Sean said, it's kind of hard for us to stomach sometimes. We find it easier to talk about God as love, God is love, God is love, than to talk about the wrath of God. But I just want to highlight three things really quickly here as we, as we finish up. God's wrath is real. It is perfectly just. And it only remains on those who choose to remain under it. It's real, it's perfectly just, and it is only for those who choose to remain under it. Right? It is God's love for everything that is right and pure and good and true that makes it impossible for him to sweep sin and evil under the rug. He can't do it. If he's actually all loving and he is actually completely just, he cannot look on the people that he made and the creation that he made to live for him, to worship him, to glorify him, see it so ravaged by sin and evil and wickedness and do nothing about it. That would not be a loving or a just God. He has to do something about it, right? And we resonate with that. We know that, right? It's this innate thing in us where we see wickedness. We see evil and sin and horrendous things. And we go, there needs to be justice for that. That needs to be fixed. That needs to be put right. That's the image of God in us, right? That's the heart of God beating in us. We see that injustice, that wickedness, and something needs to be done about it, God. Imagine, you know, we see that in our imperfection. Imagine what God sees in his perfection. The God who knows every single thought of our minds, every single intention of our hearts. Imagine what he sees. Imagine the justice that wells up in his heart, the anger for everything that is destroying the good world that he made. We go, God, something needs to be done about this, and he, he is going to do something about it. He's going to come in his perfect holiness, in his holy fire, and burn up in his righteousness everything that is not of him, everything that is not righteous and good and holy. And we go, yes, amen. But we don't realize that we fall within that that we're culpable, 
that we've saddled up with the dragon. We've chosen darkness. We've chosen sin ourselves. We're part of that. We've contributed. We're a partner to sin. Our, our nature is sin. We've sinned so many times. Our very nature is sin. We're part of that. And so we're going to feel the full effects of that wrath of God that comes against that wickedness. But we don't have to. It's perfectly just, but it is only for those who choose to remain under it. God looking upon us in our desperation says, I don't want my children to be burned up by my holy wrath against wickedness and evil and sin. So I'm going to make a way. And that way that he made is that he took it on himself. His full wrath and anger against evil and sin, he decided to come and take it on himself. To go to the cross, to be ripped to shreds and crucified and obliterated on the cross. Right? The Bible says he, Jesus, became our sin on that cross. And then as he became our sin, that sin in the body of Jesus was obliterated by the wrath of God poured out on him. He walked to the cross so that we could walk free. Right? He took what we deserve so that we could walk in the life that we do not deserve. He made a way. That's why Lewis says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. So this choice is held out to each and every one of us. You do not have to remain under the wrath of God. In the end, when that wrath against evil comes, you can either hold up the cross of Christ and hide behind it, hide behind what Jesus has done for you, or you can hold up a record of your own life, a record of your own good. And I can tell you right now, that record of your own good is going to get absolutely destroyed. He made a way for us to come out from under the wrath of God and step into life. Two kinds of people, those who see this incredible, mind-blowing love of God, what he's done for us, and who bow the knee and say, yes, Lord, take my life. Forgive me for the way I've been living, for all that I've done. Wipe the slate clean. I want to live for you. I want to walk with you. Take my heart. Come into my life. Make me a new creation. And there are those who look into the face of their Savior God, the face of of the God who gave everything for them and say, no, thank you. And God says, okay, have it your way then. Your, your will be done. So be it. And John is pleading with us. Jesus is pleading with us. I'm pleading with us. Say yes to that. Receive that life. Step out from under the wrath of God into life. That is the call to us. You don't have to remain under that wrath. There's life waiting for you. And so I just want to do something as we finish up here. If you guys will, will indulge me, can we just bow our heads and close our eyes for, for a minute here? And uh, I guess the band can come up and get ready. We're going to sing together. We're going to take communion. But 
just close your eyes and let's just have a moment here to reflect. I just want to ask, where are you at this morning? If you're here and you haven't received Jesus, you haven't received what he's done for you, you haven't said yes and stepped into this life, the reality is that life can begin for you right now, in this moment. From this moment onward, you can walk into life abundant, full, forgiven, saved, your past wiped clean, your present filled with the presence and the power of God, your future secure. You're saying, here's my life, Lord, take it. I'm sorry for how I've lived, but I believe that you died for that. I receive your forgiveness. I want to live for you. And I know because I've been there, what's going to happen right now in this moment is that that little voice is going to try to creep in and go, shh, no, 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 go back to sleep. Hey, forget about it. This isn't you. Okay, you're fine. Go back to sleep. Put the blindfold back on. But if you've been hearing the voice of God, what can only be the voice of God, drawing you to himself, working in your life, using people, using circumstances to get your attention, I just want to plead with you this morning. Just bend the knee. Say yes to Jesus. Say yes to life. Come out from under the wrath of God right now in this moment. And listen to this quote. Some will say, yes, I get that I must believe, but I still have doubts. That's okay. And it is another beautiful part of the Christian gospel. If you reach out and grab a branch as you fall from a cliff while also doubting that the branch can hold you, will it affect whether it actually can? No. And that's true for faith in the work of Jesus. It is not the strength of your own faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. It is not the depth and purity of your own heart, but the the work of Jesus on your behalf that saves you. Step into that this morning. Christian, hear once again that you are no longer under the wrath of God. If you've trusted him, if you've received this life, stop beating yourself up. Whatever you're in right now, whatever you're walking through, stop punishing yourself. Stop thinking that God is up in heaven, arms crossed, scowl on his face, angry at you for your failing. Breathe. He is for you, Romans 8 says. He is for you. He's for you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? You're not under wrath. You're under mercy. Embrace that again this morning. The best is yet to come. That is the promise of the Christian gospel. That is the promise for those who remain in Christ. Not height, nor depth, not sin, not evil, not hell, not death itself. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And this morning, if you found yourself stuck in this trap of comparison and jealousy and bitterness toward others, maybe toward God, just confess that right now. Lay it down, bring it to God. Ask him to show you where you need to be faithful with what he's entrusted to you. Ask for his help in keeping your eyes forward on what he's given to you to steward right now for your joy and for his glory. Lord, that is our prayer this morning. Would you increase, let us decrease. Help this be true for each of us. Show us how, Lord. Do this great work among us, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen.